Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and get cozy because you are listening to Mindful as a Mother with Paige Bruce and Lindsay Adams. Hey, hey, I just wanted to pop on here real quick before the episode starts and give a quick disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic relationship, and the information given in this podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the advice of a professional. Now that that's out of the way, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy it because it helps the podcast grow. And don't forget to be peace, be love, be mindful as a mother. Welcome back to Mindful as a Mother. We're here bringing you part two of our interview with the Childhood Collective. Enjoy. We all know that like sometimes typical parenting advice and parenting skills does not work for ADHD kids. So do you have any suggestions of specific parenting skills or ways you can tweak or adapt parenting skills for children with ADHD? Absolutely. So I think all of this really goes back to executive functioning, which Mallory already sort of talked about a little bit, but the executive functions are a set of skills. The important thing to know about the executive functions is that everybody is developing their executive functions. All kids are developing executive functioning. Kids with ADHD tend to be delayed in the timeline that they acquire those executive functions. So um, being standing in line and being extremely wiggly and having a really hard time keeping their hands to themselves, um, that is a skill that, again, we would expect like a three-year-old to be wiggling all the time. A nine-year-old, we're expecting like you should be able to stand there nicely. Um, But a kid with ADHD, oftentimes, their executive functions are delayed like 30% on average. That's a general rule. I wouldn't like dive too deep into like dividing and carrying the one, but generally about 30%. So then your nine-year-old who's standing in line is probably got the inhibition of about a six-year-old, right? So you see how they can really struggle with things that you would expect a kid their age to be good at. And that's true for their working memory. So um, remembering all of their assignments, bringing things home. Um, teacher gives five steps directions. We do these school observations and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm overwhelmed. That's a lot of instruction. Um, And it's hard to keep that all in your brain at one time, but things like organizing, planning, setting a goal and being able to like stay focused on that goal, not getting distracted or, you know, oh my gosh, I just noticed my toys over here. Let me just check on that for a few minutes. Um, Being flexible is a huge one for kids with ADHD. I think parents Um, that's one that we hear about a lot. And I experience a lot in my own family, that inflexibility, like we said, we were going to do it this way. And, you know, it's really hard to make that change, but that's really an executive function. We call it shift or cognitive flexibility and the ability to kind of like reroute and be okay with that. And that's hard. But again, these are skills that all the kids are learning. And so when you're thinking about parenting kids with ADHD, you're going to need to be a little bit more creative in how you apply a lot of these things. So the way we like to think about it is kind of twofold. So on one hand, we need to be doing things to support where our kids are at right now. So for example, um, they might need visual schedules. My kids do not like visual schedules. They're on like an anti 
visual schedule kick, you know, they're six and eight now, they're very mature. So what they do is they have an easel in our playroom and they write their list every morning of what they're going to do. So they don't know that that's a visual schedule, um, but it's fun. Like it's great. And that's a way to support them right now today where they're at, because I can't say go get ready for school and expect them to emerge from their bedroom in 25 minutes, like shoes tied, shirt tucked in, you know, all the things, right? So that really helps to use visuals and things like that. There's a lot of ways to use visuals. So things like putting all your getting ready stuff in a basket and then going through that way, um, putting where the shoes go right by the front door because you want them to take off their shoes right when they walk in. That's a nice like visual reminder. Um, all different kinds of things that you can use with that. So on one hand, you're supporting where they're at today. On the other hand, we're also trying to grow the executive functions and help them to grow some of these skills. And so that looks like a lot of like out loud modeling and a lot of problem solving. I think the tendency for, I know myself as a parent is to give a lot of kind of like support, um, but sometimes backing off a little bit and letting them problem solve. And then you're there, you're scaffolding that you're saying, oh, okay, I wonder what we could do about this and just pausing for a second so that they can problem solve. So when we're thinking about um, really nitty gritty, like specific parenting skills, things like helping with emotion regulation, um, helping manage behaviors, we have a free guide that we offer that parents are welcome to download. And that goes into like more specifics around routines, emotions, those kind of things. But big picture, um, I would say that you're kind of doing two things at once as a parent. You're supporting them where they're at, and building their skills so that they can become more independent. I love that. I think right now, Lindsay and I are doing a big focus on the emotional regulation piece and understanding that because I feel like it's so abstract. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, especially when you have ADHD, you're like, why is this happening? Why am I responding so intensely? And mm -hmm. so when you're talking about like, hey, we're going to do a lot of out loud modeling, that's that is a big part of what we talk about. And we, we mm -hmm. are really stressing right now nervous system and, and how it impacts us emotionally and our ability to regulate and then to tap into our executive function. Mm -hmm. And so we also, we also have a free guide to start walking through like your nervous system and what it means to uh, regulate your nervous system so you can work through those emotions. So anyways, the example that was kind of coming to my mind when you were talking about that is stuff that Lindsay and I actively do or like, wow, I'm feeling really stressed right now. I'm going to go sit down for a minute and then we can talk about what we need to do next. Mm -hmm. That's so important. And I think that's a piece that a lot of parents miss is they don't show their child. They don't let their child kind of into their own internal experience. They either keep it really cool all the time even if they're blowing up inside or they keep it really cool until they can't keep it cool anymore. And then the, the child gets to experience the child, the parent's really big emotion once the parent is past the point of really using an effective coping strategy. So it's a great learning experience for kids, whether your child has ADHD or not to see their child, see their parent talk through emotions on a day-to-day -day basis, big and small, and then also see how their parent is problem solving through that emotion, what coping strategies they're using to do that. So just by modeling it for our kids, that might be the most important piece, honestly, when it comes to helping your child with emotion regulation is modeling it for them. So I think that's always 
when I was still in private practice and I was doing therapy with families, I think that was one of the things that surprised parents the most is, oh, you, you want my kids to see my emotions. Um, but it really is such a valuable way to get our kids involved in learning emotion regulation on a day-to-day basis. That doesn't really take a lot of extra effort on our part. We just need to kind of talk our, our internal experience out loud for their benefit. And I think having conversations around what emotionality looks like with ADHD, because these kiddos are likely going to have really intense emotions throughout their entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, their parents deal with. And so how, how does mom deal with it when she gets really intense emotions and Mm -hmm. normalizing the fact that like really big feelings when your brain is neurodivergent are normal. There is nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with you because you feel things in a really big way. You Mm -hmm. just have to do the work to respond appropriately. For sure. And something that I have been really, really working on is my own body awareness and my own body attunement to kind of figure out where my big triggers are with Mm. this and where I feel that emotionality because I have ADHD and so do I was sharing with Mallory earlier that two out of three of my children do also you know it kind of shows up differently for all of us Mm -hmm. but I used to so I'd get off of work and the transition home and I'm sure a lot of this resonates with a lot of people was wild like all of a sudden I'm extremely overstimulated and I'm like going a thousand miles a minute and everything is bothering me that normally if I'm if I'm in a regulated state wouldn't be bothering me Mm-hmm. And I've been working on this for a while and trying to latch to different things like, oh, it's because it's the first time I've seen my kids all day. It's because everyone's talking to me at once. It's because um, like I went from a really quiet office to now I'm busy at home. And so as I kind of put effort into tuning into that, what I recognize is I just have difficulty with transitions. Like there isn't an external cause for me to be in this state, it's mm-hmm. just the fact that I'm transitioning between work to home. It's mm-hmm. not the clutter. It's not the children. Like once I'm already like worked up, yes, that contributes to being overstimulated. But I was like, mm-hmm. oh, what a very typical executive function struggle. It is just that transitions are hard for me, yeah. period. And once I was able to stop latching to like, oh, it's the kids doing this or my husband not doing that, I was much much more able to recognize when it was happening and to work through that without having, like, I still talk through the emotions. Like I'm just, I tell my kids all the time, I was like, I'm feeling really stressed and I just need to sit here. <laughs> and they're like, okay, mom, but eight, six, and four, that's how old my kids are. Mm. But, um, I noticed that I stopped lashing out Mm-hmm. on my family members because I stopped searching for an external reason to place blame for what was happening with me internally and like my emotional mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was a really powerful moment for me as I worked on that um, and for my parenting because mm-hmm. my kids get a different mom at that transition time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love I think, that. I think what you kind of did for yourself here is what we urge families to do is like kind of take the surface level challenge. Like maybe it's that emotionality when you get home from work and look beneath the surface to really get to the root of why is my child struggling with this? So like on the surface, they are hitting their brother, but beneath the surface, is it because a transition just happened? Is it because they've been watching screens for three hours? You know, 
getting to the root of the challenge is where we're going to be able to really help our kids, just like you did for yourself. So kind of we see the surface level challenge, but what's at the root of that challenge? And that's when we're going to be really be able to help our kids, like Katie was saying, either by meeting where, meeting them where they are and accommodating or recognizing that it might be a skill deficit and we need to build that skill to um, help them be more successful with whatever that challenge is. Um, kind of off topic, but not really. Can you guys talk a little bit about how screens affect the ADHD child's brain and what parents can do and how to find a good balance with that? Because I meet with a lot of parents who the struggle is their child really loves screens and it does help with some regulation piece, but then they recognize that it's, it, it can be very overstimulating and then really hard to get them off the screens or get them to do anything else but screens. Yeah. Screens, screens are really challenging for ADHD families because they are very motivating for the ADHD brain. It's just like constant reinforcement and it can result in the hyper-focus. And then with all of the other executive functioning delays that are going along with it, it's hard to transition them away from that, get them to do something else. So yep, ADHD and screen time struggles really go hand in hand and our recommendation for that is just screens are going to be a part of our kids' lives and we have to accept that. And I don't want to demonize screens in any way because screens can bring a lot of good. And there's a lot of reasons that parents have their children use screens for their own reasons, not selfish at all, just to keep the family functioning. So not demonizing screens here at all. They're going to be a part of our life, but we have to make a really clear plan with our kids about what is allowable screen how much screen, and we really recommend that families make a screen time plan that the whole family has been a part of making when it comes to when screens can be used, how much, what comes after screens, what kind of warnings do you give um, to help make screen time and everything surrounding screen time a little bit easier at home. Um, Katie, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think that's great. I, the screen time agreement really is one of those that I think people are scared to ask their kids, like, what do you think would be a good amount of time? Because I think every parent's fears, they're going to be like 18 hours a day. Right. <laughs> and maybe they would say that, but I think a lot of kids actually do have that awareness. Like when we give them a little bit of control in the situation, it can be really helpful. And I think something that you said, Mal, that, um, someone could have easily missed. And I just want to pull it back out because it's super important is when our screen time, when screens are used. And I think parents um, can be strategic about this, right? So if you know that as a family, two hours a day of screens is your limit, or maybe it's an hour, or maybe it's four hours, again, not in the nitty gritty, but big picture, if you're gonna get that screen time, really being specific about how that's going to work, right? Because if you have your child playing video games and then you say, we're going to turn off the video games so we can go pick up our bedroom, that is always going to cause a tantrum. I mean, I would honestly probably have a tantrum if I'm watching a show that I love and you're like, turn it off and go fold the laundry, right? Like I'm, I'm going to be upset. So instead I do this with myself. I'm like, after I finish this really boring task that I hate, I'm going to earn this really fun, cool thing, whatever it is. So you can do that same thing with screens and be strategic. I think one of the challenges is that a lot of families come to us. They're like, every time I have my kid turn off screens, they have a meltdown. 
why are you turning off screens? And it's always to go to something that's like really undesirable. Um, and so trying to flip that a little bit can be a really nice like kind of strategy. Um, and again, this looks so different for each family. Like my kids will do, we do like races. So they'll do like, okay, we're going to clean for 10 minutes and then we're going to watch an episode. Like they like bluey very short. Um, I also like Bluey, so that kind of works out, but then we, we turn it off, right? It's a natural stop point. Hey, let's clean a little bit more or, you know, everyone take a shower, see if we can beat the buzzer in 15 minutes and we can come back. Now that works for my kids because we've done it forever and they are going to be okay with that. There are many kids I would never recommend that specifically for because then you're just like multiplying the transitions, right? So it's going to be so unique, but I think being strategic as a family, like screens are something that we earn when we finish our hard things. Um, and, and keeping that in mind can just be a really, a real game changer, honestly, for, for everyone. And I think another thing that parents can do, and this is going to help once kids start to play video games and things like that is play the games with your kids, have it be part of your connection time you're doing it together, but also the benefit of that is then you understand your child's game and you understand like when the natural stopping points are, when it makes sense to shut it down or pause when they've, you know, finished a level or things like that. And then when you're able to kind of extend to your child, a little bit of compassion and understanding, instead of like, turn it off right now, more of a like, Oh, okay. When that level's over, it'd be a great place to stop they're going to feel understood by you. And they're going to be more likely to transition away from the screen a little bit better because they know you understand their game. You're not like having this unreasonable ask of like to stop the game after they've been working for 40 minutes and they can't save. Um, so kind of do it with your child, watch the show with your child, play the game with your child. And that will make screen time a little bit easier. For, I know in my house, that connection piece has been really important. So we love, um, we just got a Nintendo switch and we play Mario together. So, um, but like if my son needs to transition off of Mario, even if I'm not playing it at that time, I'll go sit next to him and I'll be like, oh, look, you got Mario, a new suit. So cool. Like that piece of connection there. And then I'm like, okay, it's time to, we've got to go do this thing now. Mm -hmm. The transition is so much more smooth than it would have been if I had just said, hey, time to turn off Mario. Yep. Yeah. And I think one last note on that, not to go too deep into the screen topic, but I want to encourage anyone that's listening, if you try one of these strategies and it doesn't like immediately go exactly how you pictured it, that's okay. Like any one of these strategies you could try, and it might not be a total success the first time. And as parents, I think we're like so quick to be like, it didn't work. Um, it's not going to work for my kid. So, you know, try it again or tweak it a little bit and try another piece. Um, but just being aware, like in our own homes, we, we struggle with this, you know, we struggle with screens, we struggle with transitions, we struggle with flexibility and it is, it's kind of like an ongoing you know, try it out, see how it goes, maybe try it again. You know, don't, don't just give up and abandon all hope. If your first day of your screen time agreement, isn't like a total win. Yeah. And I love the concept of allowing the space for grace. Cause I think about how many times it's instinctual for me on my timeline, right. As the adult raised in a very neurotypical world, I'm like, okay, you need to turn it off now. It's time to come have dinner when the episode's going to end in two or three minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of, a lot to unpack as parents in like, oh, if I give in, 
you got, you can't see it guys, but I'm doing my quote unquote, give in and let them finish that three minutes. Then they're never going to do what I say when I ask them to do it. And there's a lot to deconstruct with that, which is something else that Lindsay and I work on a lot individually mm -hmm. because it is mm -hmm. also individual, mm -hmm. but I've had to work on that in myself. Right. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Where it's like, I'm not now teaching poor habits. And I've even had people question my parents about, well, why do you, why is it okay to jump on the couch today? But you can't jump on it yesterday. And I'm just like, well, it was a different circumstance, whole different situation. Like it, it's all circumstantial <laughs> based mm -hmm. on everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like, okay, can I allow for this period of grace knowing that it'll be more successful and I'll preserve the relationship and it's not going to long-term teach those habits that I'm dreading or I shouldn't quote unquote be teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, a, a term we're kind of throwing around, we don't have too much time, but I want to just kind of generally, if you guys would define for the people listening, the term neurotypical, um, for maybe people who haven't heard it yet or aren't as familiar with it and also neurodivergent. So neurotypical are individuals that have brains that are developing as we would expect. Typically, Generally, they're hitting milestones when we would expect them to be hitting milestones and progressing at a steady rate forward as we would expect. Um, for it, other individuals, if you're not neurotypical, then you're neurodivergent. And there's, I think we're still, there's still, I don't know if I would necessarily call it debate, but I don't think there's like a community or professional wide consensus in terms of what we would put under a neurodivergent umbrella. But things that generally are falling under a neuro neurodivergent umbrella are things like ADHD, things like autism, things like Tourette's disorder. Um, there's a lot of other things that we're starting to kind of include under this neurodivergent umbrella. But basically, the things that are going under the neurodivergent umbrella are individuals who have brains that work differently than the neurotypical brain. They like to do things differently. Maybe they're not hitting milestones, the same trajectory. Maybe there's some milestones they're not hitting at all. Um, so kind of, we contrast neurotypical brains with those neurodivergent brains. And I think it's a new term in the sense of like for a long time, even in my title, right? Speech language pathologist, we pathologize things and we say, okay, here's like the normal in quotes trajectory. And then here's like the pathology or like the problematic diagnoses. And so I think the idea behind like the idea, the term like neurodivergent or neurodiversity is more to say like, these are all brains. They're all different types of brains that process the world and take in information differently. And there's like a celebratory piece to that. I think, um, that, that you're really accepting like all the different types of brains. Um, whereas in the past, everything was labeled as like a disorder and red flags and these kind of things. And we're still, there's still a lot of that. Um, but it's just a different way of using the same sort of like tweaking the language to, to celebrate all different types of brains. That was the most beautiful way to explain that, that I have ever heard. Oh, thank you. That was very nice. <laughs> it, it, like, because I think it's a newer thing. And as a professional, I'm, I'm learning about it with all of you, right? Because it's new. And, and so it's hard when people come to you and say, well, does this fit under, does this fit under? And I'm like, depending on who you ask, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. some people are mm -hmm. going to say no about that one. Mm -hmm. I don't, so I really also like the piece where it's like the way 
that the medical field is operating now when it comes to like psychology and uh, behavioral health is like we understood back in the day, I'm going to say back in the day, this was how the brain worked. There was only one brain. And now we're learning because of the advancements in technology that there are a lot of different brains. And so we're trying to learn the different ways to classify it to celebrate those differences. Mm-hmm. And I, I use this kind of terminology a lot um, when I work with kids in the schools. And they're like, well, they, I have ADHD, so I can't do this. And I was like, I also have ADHD. <laughs> like, it means our brain works differently and we mm-hmm. can still learn. We're just mm-hmm. going to get creative about it, right? Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate those definitions and just the emphasis of, of understanding if you're listening to this podcast, know that us four in the field, actively in the field, trying to stay up to date with whatever research we can, that neurotypical really is defining like the way we used to know how brains work. And now 2023, we're learning that there are a lot of different, different brains and all of them work and all of them are good, but they work differently, which helps us understand. Absolutely. Okay. Tell us where we can find you, what services you offer, all the things. So probably the best way to find us is our website. Um, Our company is called the Childhood Collective. And so the childhoodcollective.com is where you can access everything, our courses, our podcasts, our blog, um, lots of great stuff in across those platforms. We also are on Instagram um, regularly. We post all kinds of reels and some of it's educational, some of it's sort of empathy humor based, um, but we're connecting with all kinds of people over there. It's kind of a growing community. Um, our, our most recent, um, kind of adventure is a podcast. So we're learning from you ladies and all the work that you've put into your podcast, but, um, we have, you know, a handful of episodes right now, and it's going to be new episodes are released every Wednesday. So we're pretty excited about that. If anyone's looking for parenting resources, we do have a free guide that is six keys to raising a happy and independent child with ADHD. We go into a lot of the things we talked about today, like executive functioning, emotional regulation, really reframing a lot of the things that we would historically see as like negative behavior and understanding why that's happening and how we can support. So that's a great place to start. And that can be found on our website. And maybe you guys could share it in the show notes here. Um, But that's a free guide. And we would love to have you um, download that and kind of just start learning some tools for parenting ADHD. Lindsay and I spent special time creating a resource for you guys. It's called Nervous System Foundation 101. You can find it in our stand store. If you're looking to start the journey of regulating your nervous system and becoming the calm, patient parent that we know you want to be, you're going to want to get your paws on this. It was free for a limited time, and now it's only listed for $7 in our stand store. We're going to go ahead and pop the link to that in our show notes today. So if you're interested in starting the journey to understand the why, how, and what behind nervous system regulation and how it impacts your parenting, go ahead and check it out. Thanks for coming to Mindful as a Mother podcast. If you'd like more of us and Mindful as a Mother, you can find Paige at Instagram at Parenting with Paige and Lindsay at Linz underscore Adams LCSW. Find us on TikTok, Instagram, and in our Facebook group, creating community and smashing parental stigma, embracing mindful motherhood and positive parenting. Thanks so much and see you next time.